0: Well, good morning. I want to welcome you here this morning and also those that are joining live stream. So thankful that you're here. And uh, I'm excited about what God wants to do in our lives today. Are you expecting something? Yes. Are you coming believing? Yes. Good. Because you know what? We usually get what we expect. If we don't expect anything, we probably all be disappointed. <laughs> Why don't we stand together this morning? While we're doing that, let me just make mention of something. Uh, We've had the privilege of actually building an orphanage as a congregation probably uh, 12 years ago, and we've been supporting orphans. And so every once in a while, uh, we have to recalibrate because everybody's commitment is different. Some can go for a year. Some, you know, uh, maybe because of the COVID difficulties, have had to step away from supporting orphans. But if you're interested, we probably need about 20-plus uh, people to step up. It's $40 Canadian a month. You get to support an orphan's uh, shelter, food, clothing, education. That's a pretty good price. 480 Canadian one time gift will take care of an orphan. So uh, I believe that that's part of uh, walking with God as a Christian that we do these kinds of things, that we care for the widows and the orphans and their affliction. The Bible says that's pure religion before Almighty God. So uh, if you have the resources and you feel God's prompting you to do that, uh, just let us know and we'll be happy to sign you up. Let's pray. This morning I'm going to believe God and I, you know, I, I thought of last week. Last week was fun, inspirational. Some of you that were weary, maybe discouraged, I'm praying that God lifted your soul. How many felt, you know, you were lifted last week? You were encouraged. That's great. This week is more instructional. How's that? It can't always be, you know, rah, rah, rah. This is more like a little more of a probe into where our souls are at today and allow God to bring about transformation. How many here want to really be used by God? i got my hand up. So, you know, if God's going to do that, he's got to do this transforming work in our life. So let's pray. Lord, I thank you this morning for your amazing word, which reveals to us who you are and also how we ought to live. And out of that, we can walk in wisdom. And we're looking at that in uh, the book of Proverbs. So Father, I pray today, give us these insights, probe our hearts. I believe you're going to speak to us individually, very specifically. You're going to put your finger on things in our soul. You're going to help us become overcomers. That we're going to run the race with less encumbrances. We're going to lay aside the weights that so easily uh, weigh us down, Father, in this race. We're going to run with uh, perseverance and patience and endurance and joy. And I pray, Lord, that you will help me to communicate in such a way that as we leave this place today, we'll have heard your voice speaking through your words. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. You may be seated. You know, I've actually been listening to some uh, lectures, just started a lecture series on why evil exists. How many think that's kind of an intriguing topic? And uh, there's a lot of reasons, a different number of reasons. We know that evil came into the world And it's permeated our culture today. But one of the things that it affects all of us as individuals, and I think C.S. Lewis kind of summarized how the impact is in our own personal life when he wrote these words, evil comes from the abuse of free will. In other words, God gave us uh, uh, an ability to make choices. And when we make the wrong choices, it really affects in a negative way. And that's especially true uh, in a believer's life, I think non-believers have a harder time making good choices. I think they're already they're dead in trespasses and sins. But as Christians, uh, we have an ability to make good choices. I, I think there's a moral order. And whenever human rebellion rebels against God's moral order, it actually brings chaos, confusion, and calamity. And a lot of the pain that we're seeing in our world today is because we've allowed this kind of evil to happen in our world. But I don't want to just focus on, you know, where it originates. That's not my sermon topic. I want to talk about finding our way home. I want to talk about how do we get on the right path to restoration and order in our lives? How do we come out of the chaos? How do we get our lives in the right place? Uh what should be the right approach to a living life and i think in proverbs we have this path that's being described for us it's a path of wisdom jesus talks about you know the narrow way and i believe that jesus words reflect a lot of this wisdom literature that we've been reading about in the book of proverbs as well as the other apostles as they're writing uh, god's purposes and ways for our lives and so i want to talk about how do we secure it how do we continue to walk in it uh, what are some of the things that we need to consider and observe in life? What are some of the lessons we can gain? And so we're going to move to Proverbs 30. How many are amazed that we're actually getting towards the end of the book of Proverbs? Some of you are going, thank God, let's move to something else. And other people are going, I'm totally enjoying this. I'm happy, you know. And I was thinking about this chapter. There's so much material in this chapter. But let's just zero in on uh, Proverbs 30 today. And we're moving away from uh, the author. Like earlier, it said these are the Proverbs of Solomon. Later on, it says these are the Proverbs that the uh, that the scribes in the reign of King Hezekiah copied. But now we're being introduced to a new character, and his name is Agur, son of Jacob. And he says that I'm gonna share with you our inspired utterances. And so... Uh, We're going to look at two categories today of sayings in order to live wisely. How many here want to live wisely? How many want to walk godly before Almighty God? We want to walk in the Spirit. We want to do the right things. We want to make a difference in our world. We want to live with purpose. We want to live with meaning and significance. I believe that we can gain all of that as we're going through the book of Proverbs. And the first category of sayings in order to live wisely is having the knowledge of God. You know, it says the fear of the Lord, you know, is the beginning of knowledge, not just wisdom, but of knowledge. But how do we secure this knowledge of God? Where do we go to find this understanding, this wisdom that comes from God? And the answer is simply from God himself. God has to show us who he is. It takes the work of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, to make God known to us to make Christ the Savior known to us to reveal to us God's ways and purposes. Yes, we have the Word of the Lord here. We'll look at that in a minute, but we need the work of God's Spirit to make this uh, real in our lives. What wisdom basically only can come through divine revelation. It's it's we have a revealed religion. God has to make this has to open our heart, give us the understanding. It's not about just. Human ingenuity and intellect. It's about God saying, This is who I am. And He makes it understood to us. Now, verse one here in Proverbs is the most difficult verse in the entire book. And I'll explain to you why briefly. It's the most difficult because they're all nouns, the first verse. And the translators, now, you know, the the Old Testament's primarily in the Hebrew language. So we're translating it into another language. Does anybody here know more than one language? How many know more than one language? How many know that sometimes it's difficult to bring an idea into another language? Sometimes there isn't that concept there. And sometimes, you know, we just don't have the words that translate. You know, so we're trying to bring an idea across. So here they are, they're looking at these words, and uh, we, we get... First of all, they're all nouns, and so scholars are arguing over what do they mean. Some of them think, well, it just means the name of people. And then, of course, in the Hebrew language, names also have meanings, and so they're saying to themselves, do these names then mean this, and this is how we should interpret that. I'm just giving you a little of the pressure that these translators have. You know, I think it's fascinating. One of the words is masa, which could be a place, or it could mean the word utterance or oracle. Here, Agar is mentioned, but this is the only place. So he's not mentioned anywhere else in biblical literature or in extra-biblical literature. So people go, who is he? And why is he speaking in the canon of Scripture here? So let's take a look at the verse, beginning in verse 1. The sayings of Agar, son of Jacob, an inspired utterance to Ithiel. And then th- this is how the NIV translates it. I am weary, God but I can prevail. That's why I preached that sermon on weariness last week, because I got so raptured with this word, but I realized this text doesn't teach weariness. It's going to talk about something totally different. Okay. Um, while the NIV translates this expression as being weary, other translations translate it literally from the Hebrew as, the man says to Ithiel, to Ithiel and Eukol." Doesn't that that sound inspiring? Okay, maybe it doesn't. But uh, it sounds a lot different in today's English version where Ithiel is translated as God is not with me and I am not God. Or in the New American Bible, ukul could mean I'm helpless. Or in today's English version, I am weary. Okay, so a lot of different ways of interpreting verse one. How many see some of the problems there? You go, I didn't even know that this is even the issue. How do, how do they come up with what may be the right translation? I'll just give it to you really quickly. You try to find it in the context. So let's take a look at the next three verses. In Proverbs chapter 30, verse 2, he says, Surely I am a brute, not a man. I do not have human understanding. What's he doing here? He's depreciating himself. He's saying, hey, I, I, I just don't have the, the right insight. Uh, so, so what's the point? The point here in this context is that I'm trying to get to know who God is. Verse 3 says, I have not learned wisdom, nor have I attained to the knowledge of the Holy One. In other words, who's gone up to heaven and come down? Who's the person that's actually ascended to heaven so he knows who God is? Or whose hands have gathered up the wind or who has wrapped up the waters in a cloak? Of course, the rhetorical question, the answer would be only God does that. Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and what is the name of his son? Surely you know. So I think there are two ideas primarily that flow from this self-deprecation of the speaker. And the first is that the knowledge of God can only come from God. In other words, we can't get to know who God is unless he tells us who he is. That makes sense. God has to reveal himself to us. And how does God primarily do that? Through two things. One, the fact that he's created this world declares that there's a creator. Now, I know that we're very sophisticated in the 21st century, and we come up with ideas that there is no God, there's other ways to understand our world, but let's be realistic. Even the brightest minds, scientists today, you know, are struggling because they go, look at the design in our world today. There had to be a designer. And so now we have a whole new category of people talking about intelligent design. Isn't that interesting? But I think it's a declaration that God exists, that he is, and that he's powerful, and that he's a designer. And when we look at the human body, we marvel at just the, the way God fashioned and made us. So these things declare God, but there's something even more specific, and that's his word. God has revealed himself through his word. He's revealed himself through the person of Jesus Christ, who is the living word of God, but he's also revealed himself through these words that we're studying right now, this, the canonical scriptures. He goes on, to, the second idea is that the wise person recognizes what they don't know. You know, isn't it amazing, you know, if you have a little bit of knowledge, it can be really dangerous because you think you know too much or else you know everything. How many know when you're 18, you know everything? You know, and then by the time you're in your 40s and 50s, you realize how little you did know. You made all these mistakes and realized there was a lot of things you wish you had known better, right? Uh, That's all part of getting experience. And I like what Dr. Longman writes. He says, those who are truly wise must first acknowledge their ignorance. How many know that if you think you know everything, you're not open to learning? But the moment you say, you know, I think there's room for improvement. There's probably things I don't know that I need to know. And you start hunting and searching and learning. It's powerful. Agar is obviously not someone who is, quote, wise in his own eyes. Remember, the Bible says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't be wise in your own eyes. You see, the foolish person, the person who doesn't know God is full of themselves. They're wise in their own eyes. But a wise person, someone who really knows God, recognizes I don't know everything, I need to trust God so that my life will work a lot better because God obviously knows the future and he knows me and he knows what's gonna happen, so I'm gonna trust God. So people who first uh, must recognize their own ignorance before they can turn to God for true insight and those who think they're wise, they don't think they have to put any effort into the acquisition of insight, which is true. In verse 4, we see the question, who has gone up to heaven and come down? What do you think the answer is? No one. No human being has you know, scaled into heaven on its, on his, in his own way to get to know who God is. So the question is a rhetorical question. The answer is nobody's done that. And yet we get an insight from the New Testament that's really beautiful. And I love it. Jesus is talking about, to a religious leader by the name of Nicodemus. And he says something very profound in John chapter 3, verse 12. He says, "'I've spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things?' And then he says these beautiful words in verse 13. No one has ever gone into heaven. See, Jesus, it's almost like he's quoting this verse in Proverbs. But then he says, except the one who came down from heaven, the Son of Man. Now, how many recognize in that statement that Jesus, that's a self-designation. He calls himself the Son of Man over and over and over again in the Gospels. Jesus is the one who came from heaven to earth. So Jesus came to reveal the Father to humanity. And that's why Jesus could say to his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You know, what I'm saying is what the Father's saying. I only speak what the Father tells me to say, and I only do what the Father tells me to do. So if you've seen me, he says, you've seen exactly what God is like. Because really, in a sense, what is he? Jesus is God, become a man. He's the one who left heaven and came to earth. What a beautiful picture. Now, we also move from the acknowledgement of God himself revealing himself to the person of Christ, but here in Proverbs, we get in verse 5, that God reveals himself through his word. It says, "'Every word of God is flawless. He's a shield to those who take refuge in him.'" Do not add to his words or he will rebuke you and prove you a liar. Now, the reference to word in verse 5 here brings the movement full circle from Agar's opening statement of exhaustion and ignorance of the word of God. Agar dramatically states that only God can give him heavenly knowledge and that knowledge is contained in reliable words from God. Isn't that beautiful? So you and I can know God. That's what he's saying. You and I can only know God when God speaks to us. You and I can only know God when God reveals himself, and God primarily does it through, I've already said, the person of Christ and the word of the living God. That's the way he's going to do it. That's what we need to understand. And then we hear the right response to this message. We hear the specific prayers to live a life of moderation, which is continuously coming through the book of Proverbs. Now, two weeks ago, I spoke on self-control. Anybody here heard that sermon, how important self-control is in our lives? And, you know, as human beings, we get into trouble when we go to extremes. How many recognize that? You know, one of the fruit of the Spirit, the last one, love, joy, peace, the very end, self-control. You know, we tend to swing pretty wide, don't we? We get ourselves into all kinds of troubles. We, 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 we overdo things. We overcompensate. We, we, we take extreme positions, and it gets us into all kinds of trouble. Wise people learn how to live a more balanced life. And so here's what he asked in his prayer. Two things I ask of you, Lord. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me, and give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. How many hear an echo? Give me only my daily bread. How did Jesus teach us how to pray? You know, give us this day our daily bread. How many are catching on? Can you see the echoes of this wisdom literature in the New Testament? It's very powerful. Verse 9, Otherwise I may have too much and disown you and say, Who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. I'll go back. Okay, so two temptations or dangers are addressed in this prayer. Now I think the the first one is falsehood and lies. First of all, Keep me from falsehood. Now, not only from me doing it, but from people doing it to me, right? Keep me from buying into deception. Keep me from deceiving others. That's what he's talking about here. And we see that, uh, that one of the first temptations in life that we see that Jesus even addressed in his wilderness temptation was turn these stones into bread. Remember that temptation? Turn these stones into bread. What's, what's that temptation all about there? Well, Jesus is as, actually uh, tempted to place the, the, the temporal above the eternal. How many know that you and I can also have that same thing happening in our lives? We can be tempted to put what is temporal above the eternal. You know, isn't it interesting that Jesus said, you know, man shall not live by bread alone? That's what he says. That's what it, that really is all talking about there. He's basically explaining that to us. And Jesus says it this way, seek first my kingdom and its righteousness and then all these other things will be added unto you. I'm having a problem here. Just give me a second. Yeah, this new microphone. There, I'll get it. You know, my family and I, we've been doing a devotional called Walking with Jesus, a journey to the cross. And it's interesting that the writer defines temptation as anything that promises satisfaction at the cost of obedience to God. Isn't that a powerful definition? You know, we're all tempted. You know, Satan says to Jesus, bow down to me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of this world. That was a temptation. You know, you can secure what the world has to offer. If you'll just, you know, forsake doing what the Father wants you to do. You know, in a sense, Jesus was securing the kingdoms of the world, but he was doing it in a totally different way by laying down his life for all of us. So throughout the book of Proverbs, we're urged to practice honesty, to speak the truth, to see lying as an evil. And, uh, but I think the biggest one is the one that we do to ourselves. Isn't that the most challenging thing that we could actually uh, live a life of deception? And that's why I think uh, in verse, uh, in the Psalms here, verse 23, it says, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know uh, my mind, my anxious thoughts, sorry. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Now, why does he pray that prayer? Because how many recognize that so often we can't see the problems in ourselves? You know, it's always interesting. I think today we're so consumed with all the evil in our world, right? We just think, oh, it's terrible. There's bad stuff happening. Why is this going on? But can I just say that the primary thing that we can address when we speak to, about evil is the evil within ourselves, is, is the areas in our lives that are not right. If you want to look for evil, you get up in the morning, look at yourself in the mirror and go, okay, what's down there that really needs to be addressed? What's the evil that I need to address within my own soul? If you and I start doing, dealing with that, all of a sudden, we're going to actually make a big difference in our personal world. How's that? And I think from there, then we can make an impact on the lives of people around us. As a matter of fact, Jeremiah says it this way, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Is that a powerful statement? So in our culture today, we're telling people they're intrinsically good. I'm going, no, we're made in the image of God, but sin came in and we have a propensity towards sin. And so therefore, we're living in a state of self-deception often, and it's beyond cure. Only God can uh, remedy the problem in our lives. We have to come to him to be cured, from the nature of deception in ourselves. We need to see ourselves as we really are. By the way, it's pretty shocking when you see yourself as you really are. And here, the Bible is actually like a mirror. It shows us the true condition of our soul. He says, who can fully understand it? Who can understand the word of God? I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind. In Proverbs, he goes on to say, above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Keep your mouth free from perversity. Keep corrupt talk far from your lips. So we can see that the issue comes from within us. The evil is coming. Actually, we have to address it in our lives. You know, I think we're so concerned about what's happening out there right now. I I see so many people wound up about what's going on out there, and we're not focused in on, maybe we need to address the evil within before we can really effectively address the evil outside. That's my point. Okay, the second danger mentioned here is having more than we can handle. How many know that riches can easily corrupt us, because we can start trusting them rather than the one who gives us the riches, which is God. Uh, And I think Moses had a lot to say about that and warned us in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Remember, they're going through the wilderness, they get up to the promised land, they're about to enter in. Moses is now reminding them. He says, oh, by the way, when God really starts blessing your life, here's what you need to remember. When you have eaten and are satisfied, the danger is not when you're hungry. The danger is when you're satisfied. The danger is when life is going good. How many say that's probably true? When everything goes great, I think you've got to have your guard up a little bit, just a little bit, because he says, praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. What's he telling us to do? He says, when God is doing good things in your life and you're really blessed, you should be full of gratitude. That's what you should be. You should never think, well, I'm doing this. You should never feel like, you know, I'm, I, I'm moving on. You know, thanks, God, for the big help, big head start here, but now I can handle it. No, 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 no. no now is the time to be on our guard and say, okay, God, thank you, and I'm going to live to praise you and appreciate all that you've done for me. Verse 11, be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God. Failing to observe his commands, his laws, his decrees that I'm giving you this day. What's he mean by this? I don't think what it means is that you and I forget who God is, or forget it. we forget God when we disobey Him. We forget God when we turn our back on Him. That's what it means by forgetting God. Okay, it's it's a, a figure of speech. It's a, an expression. It's not like you know, oh, I forgot who you know, you know, what I learned in in, in school or in church. You know, that's not what it's about. It's When I don't do what he's telling me to do, I'm actually forgetting God at that point. Verse 12, Otherwise when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, when your flocks and herds grow large and your silver and gold increases and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become what? Proud. Now that's the word I want you to focus in on today because I think this chapter, it doesn't deal with weariness, it deals with pride. That's what we're going to see as we keep going, journeying through the chapter. See, when we become proud, what's going to happen? When we become proud, we forget God. We forget what God's done for us. We forget the redemptive work of God. See, they brought them out of Egypt. That's redemption. God brought them out. What has God done for us? He's brought you and I out of sin. That's what we need to see here. And it says, you may say to yourself in verse 17, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. Can I just point out to you? by the grace of god you are what you are by the grace of god he's given you what you've received we need to understand that that's god's doing every good and perfect gift comes from god comes from above verse 19 if you ever forget the lord your god and follow other gods and worship and bow down to them i testify against you today that you will surely be destroyed in other words this is how to self-destruct just forget god just do your own thing Okay, and then the prayer that goes to the opposite issue of wealth temptation is the response if we're impoverished. Lord, help me not to have so little that I try to take from others what they have. I don't steal and thereby dishonor your name. This is now followed by warnings against examples of foolish or sinful behavior. And we see that beginning in verse 10. Proverbs 30, 10 says, do not slander a servant to their master or they will curse you and you will pay for it. So what is slander? Slander is saying uh, things about people that are not true. Slander is when we work at diminishing other people and we try to destroy their reputation. How many here you could say, you know, I've probably been guilty a time or two or speaking not too nicely about other people and what I said probably wasn't the full truth. Huh? Do you think that we've ever done that? Anybody here probably ever done that? I think we probably might all say, I probably have to put my hand up once in a while. We probably have said things we shouldn't have said. And I think it's really interesting what Paul says. And I think Paul almost picks up on this in Romans chapter 14 and verse 4 when he says, Who are you to judge someone else's servant? Let's go back in Proverbs 30, 10. Do not slander a servant to their master. Paul says, who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will be able to stand for the Lord is able to make them stand. Now, I think we need to understand what they're saying here. I think it's, uh, we need to get a grasp on what's happening in the church world today. We are very quick to criticize one another. How many say that's probably true? But let me ask you a question. If we're all servants of God, who is our master? God is. Jesus, right? And, the, every person that's a follower of Christ, who are they ultimately answering to? Jesus. So I think we better be a little slower on criticizing people and what they're doing. And I'll, I'll, I'll give you this, what I'm, where I'm kind of going with this. It's real simple. You know, in Christianity, there is some essential doctrine. How many know essential teaching? Jesus Christ died on the cross. He came to earth. He's God. He became a man. He lived a sinless life he died on the cross for our sins, he rose again from the dead bodily, and he's now at the right hand of the Father, and he's coming back again. I think those are pretty essential ideas, right? But how many know the Bible is a big book and there's a lot of ideas in the Bible and there's a lot of differences of opinion? Does anybody know that? And so here's what I would say, in the essentials, yes, there needs to be a unified idea. We need to all agree with the essentials. If we don't, we're probably not Christians. That's the essential. But after that, I think we need to be more charitable to people and be more respectful and say, you know, I don't believe what you believe there, but that's okay. That doesn't mean I'm not a Christian. It just means I don't agree with that person's point of view. You know, I read widely. I've had, you know, I've been to seminary, I don't know, for a long time. You think I agree with every professor I ever heard? I don't think so. You know, they probably don't agree with everything I say, which is okay. You may not even agree with some of the things I say. That's fine. As long as you have a deep conviction from Scripture something else, I don't have a problem unless it's the essential. That's the issue. And I bring this up because sometimes we can become pretty nasty towards people we don't agree with. We kind of get very sectarian. And I see that in the church as a whole. It becomes very sectarian. And some groups are very harsh towards other groups. And I'm going, why? As a matter of fact, I look at the story where Jesus' disciples, you know, John's coming along. By the way, I think we think of John as a sweet guy. You know, Jesus called John and James sons of thunder. These guys had an edge to them. And here's a story where John is seeing someone driving out demons in in Jesus' name, and he he says to them, stop that. And he says to Jesus, we told them to stop because he was not one of us. Isn't that that an interesting story? We we put him in his place, Jesus. He, He wasn't with us. We're telling him to stop. Jesus has a little corrective for John here. And I think this is the corrective I'm trying to bring across right now. It says, do not stop them, Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. I may think that's an interesting position. What is Jesus saying? Be careful, you, got, you and me, we don't become so narrow focused that we think that people who are not totally in agreement with everything we agree, you know, they're not followers of Christ. They just may come at it a little differently. I think we need to be a little more uh, we need to recognize that and allow Jesus to correct things if you don't agree with them. Okay, here's another warning. It's the ingratitude we have for those who are mentors or parents in our lives. Listen to what it says here. Those who, there are those who curse their fathers and do not bless their mothers. There are those who are pure in their own eyes and yet are not cleansed of their own filth. There are those whose eyes are ever so haughty. What does haughtiness mean? It's pride, whose glances are so disdainful, looking down on people. Right? You ever had somebody look down on you? You know, you say something, they just kind of look. At, Whoa! You, you just felt like you got put down just by their look. What? What? When you look down on somebody, what are you saying? I'm better than you. Isn't that true? Yeah. He says, "Don't do that." He says, "There's a group of people that do that. There's a who those whose teeth are swords and whose jaws are set with knives to devour the poor from the earth." and the needy from among mankind. I don't think this is cannibalism. I don't think they're going to eat them. I think what he's saying is, you know, when we, the way we talk about people, we're devouring them. See, Paul talks about that in Galatians. Don't bite and devour each other. <laughs> you know, with the words we're using, that's what he's talking about. Now, notice the behaviors that are flowing from these people. Now, I, I have to ask a question. This is primarily a spirit that's evident in our culture today. Can I, can I argue that this is a spirit of rebellion against authority? And don't you think that this culture today is quite haughty? Our culture today is quite haughty. You know, we look down at the past and we go, these guys are all idiots. Their ideologies were all wrong. We're tearing down all the statues. Everything that people honored in the past, we're speaking evil of today. How many think that we're this generation? He's describing us pretty clearly right here as being, this is what's going on. How many can say, I can see that? Can anybody see this besides what I'm, what I'm sharing? Do you see it? Now look what Paul says, just to reinforce this idea. And I think, again, I keep going back to, I wonder where Paul gets these ideas from. I think they come out of passages like this. This is what he writes in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. He says, but mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. Now let me, just, let me just give you something about the last days. Because I think when we think of the last days, we go, oh, we're in the last days. And I'm going, yeah, you're right. But we've been in the last days biblically since the day of Pentecost. That was 2,000 years ago. So what is he saying? We're living in an age right now that the Bible classifies as the last days. And these are the characteristics of people who live in this age. And here's what Paul says about them. People will be lovers of themselves. Are we seeing that prevalent in our culture today? People, they're primarily about themselves. You know, they're lovers of money, they're boastful, they're proud, they're abusive, they're disobedient to their parents, they're ungrateful, they're unholy, they're without love, they're unforgiving, they're slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good. By the way, I'm just describing all the characteristics of what, Paul, uh, what the wisdom writers would say would be folly in the book of Proverbs. These are unwise people. These are ungodly people. That's what he's describing, the ungodly. He says, they're treacherous, they're rash, they're conceited, they're lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. You go, what a bunch of bad people here, right? How many see that? How many, when you look at this list, who do you immediately think of? All the people in the world, right? Well, let me look at the next verse. Having a form of godliness. Uh-oh. Having a form of godliness but denying its power. Have nothing to do with such people. So what is he saying here? He's saying, listen, folks. We need to understand something. And here's the big thing that I think we need to get. We're in the church, but the church is a mixed multitude. Jesus talks about it in a parable. He said the sower went out to sow. He sowed the good seed. The crop came up, but during the night when they were sleeping, an enemy came along and sowed bad seed into the same field. And the next day when they woke up, of course, it's a metaphor. It's a picture, right? The weeds were already growing with the wheat, you know, with the crop. And so they raced to the master and said, should we get rid of the weeds. And he said, no, 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 just leave them, grow side by side. He said at the end of the age, the angels will actually make the distinction. They'll actually separate the, the good from the bad. Isn't that, How many think that's a fascinating parable? What, what are we learning there? It's not our job to be winnowing out who's who in the church, but we have to understand it's a mixed multitude. Now, why, why shouldn't we take them out? Because you might be pulling up the weed, the, the right, you don't know who you're pulling out. You think you know, but you don't. Nobody knows the human heart of a person sitting next to you. And you say, Well, yeah, but I can see they're not doing the right thing. Well, yeah, but they might be a believer struggling with an issue. And the other person may look like they're a Satan, maybe conforming outwardly to the moral standards, but inwardly they're they're desperately wicked and they're, you know, good Pharisees. How's that? Whoa. Boom! Right? But here's the good news: this is what I love. You know there's a little difference between the natural crop and the supernatural crop because what can happen in a church, let's say you got people that aren't saved sitting in a church thinking they're Christians and then all of a sudden one day the Spirit of God comes on them and they realize, you know what, I've never really repented. I really don't know Christ as my savior and they get saved. All of a sudden they get transformed from being a piece of weed to all of a sudden part of the crop. Isn't that beautiful? So that's, you know, we have to learn to be patient with people. That's what I'm trying to get across here because it's really easy to make quick judgments. But let me move on to the second part of this category, and it's to live with understanding before God. To live wisely is now reflected in a number of what we call numerical proverbs. And I think these are so interesting. Here we discover that there are some things that are never satisfied, absolutely amazing, incredibly challenging, apparently small yet wise, and ultimately majestic in their station in life. And he begins with the introduction of the leech. Isn't that a great example? Look at verse 615. The leech has two daughters. Give and give, they cry. There's three things that are never satisfied, four that never say enough. You know what a leech is? It's a little creature that gets into you and starts sucking blood on you, and they don't contribute anything good to you. I mean, that's problematic, right? And so he's saying the leech only takes, it doesn't give, and it's never satisfied. And then he goes on to give us Uh, things which are never satisfied. And he names them. He says, the grave, the barren womb, land which is never satisfied with water and fire, which never says enough. Now, we know that people are constantly dying. So the grave is never satisfied. That's what he's saying. How many know, as long as we've been on this planet as human beings and sin entered into the world, people have been dying. And people are gonna keep dying. And uh, I hate to shake everybody up, but... No matter how many things we do to protect ourselves from all the problems in the world, we're still going to die one day. Anybody figure that out yet? How many kind of figure that out? It's going to happen. You know, Nobody wants to talk about that, but that's the truth. You know, then the next one is the barren womb. But I want to just give this to you in an Old Testament concept. And it's really simple. Most of the ancient Jewish people had an underdeveloped understanding of the resurrection. If you only have the Old Testament, you don't have the new. You and I read the Old Testament through a lens called the New Testament. So we a lot of times are imputing ideas in there that are not there. And so when a Jewish person, especially at the beginning of the Old Testament, their whole concept was that they went into the grave and that was it. And so for them, the idea was that you perpetuated your life by your children. And so to be barren was a deep curse. So then you could not have a lineage that's the concept. So that's why this was a big deal, the barren womb. Then it says, land which is never satisfied with water. Now, we're, who's writing these? Well, this is coming out of Israel. How many have ever been to Israel? I've been there. How many know the biggest issue Israel is faced with is water? They don't have enough water. Water. If you go talk to these guys, they'll talk to you about water. They you know, they can't get over how much water we have in Canada. But there they have no, a little river. The Jordan River is a tiny... It's smaller than most, it's it's like a creek in Canada. I'm gonna tell you, it's just not that big. How's that? That's a shocking statement for most of us. Isn't that amazing? And then you get down to a place like the Dead Sea, and you're down to the, like, the place where the Essenes lived in Qumran, and what happens there is they get flash floods. And so they may not have rain for three months, and then all of a sudden water comes gushing in. So they create little irrigation things to pool the water so they can actually retain water. Water is so precious to them. And so they're saying, this land is never satisfied, never has enough water. And then finally, fire. How many knows, as long as there's something combustible, fire keeps going. You've got to stop feeding the crazy thing or it'll keep going. You know one of the things that we need to realize? That uh, contentment is not attained by getting more. See, we live in a deceptive culture. Here's the deception. You will be happy when you have this. Do you know that's a lie? Advertisements telling each one of us every single day, you'll be content when you have this product. Can I tell you that's all bogus? Contentment is not attained by getting more. Contentment is attained by accepting what you have and being thankful. I'm redefining contentment, see? Listen to what the Apostle Paul says. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. How many think contentment is an amazing thing? To just learn to be content. He goes on to say in verse 12, I know what it is to be in need, I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, Whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or living in want, whether we have COVID restrictions, or no COVID restrictions. I've learned to be content. How many can say that? Wow. Listen to what he says. Here's the secret. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. In other words, if you and I have Christ in our life, we can have contentment. Isn't that beautiful? And it's not by getting more. It's by being happy with what God already has blessed us with and being thankful for it. Okay. You'll think about that. Things that are amazing and mysterious, and I would even write instinctual, because wisdom is instinctual. Proverbs 30, verse 18 says, There are three things that are too amazing for me, four that I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a snake on a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a man with a young woman. Now here we see these are riddles. And if you go back to chapter 1, when you read the introduction of the book, the, you know, the uh, prologue, He talks about wisdom as understanding riddles. Now he's going to give us some riddles here. These are riddles. So what is the riddle? Each of these move in a certain manner in its environment. How many know the eagle soars in the sky, the snake slithers upon the rock, and the ship glides through the waters? But in the four examples, we have the way of relating properly and in a God-designed manner reflecting wisdom. You know, Paul Coppock says, each of these wise travelers know how to make its way and it's part of the created order. Eagles don't try and swim. Snakes don't try and fly. Ships that go on rocks, they're destroyed. They're staying within their environment. There's a movement there. And then he says this. This is interesting, and I'll, I'll explain why he uses the next statement. He goes, therefore, men and women who despise the mystery of love and sex and move outside of its boundaries are like those who step out of their place in a created order and cause the earth to tremble. Now, you go, how does he come up with that With a way with a man, with a young woman? Why, does he, why is he interpreting this as an abuse of uh, proper sex or the boundary of sexuality? Because the very next verse tells you something. This is the way of an adulterous woman. Or I could say a man. She eats or he eats and wipes their mouths and says, I've done nothing wrong. So in the context, it's basically saying God has a position and a place for everything in life. And how many recognize that when we go outside of God's designation, we suffer. The people around us suffer. There's pain. Families are destroyed because of it. And we need to understand that there are actually negative consequences. And then this idea of she eats and wipes her mouth. It's the, again, this idea of eating is consuming. And she's consuming an illicit relationships. And she sees nothing unhealthy about what she has done. As a matter of fact, we're warned against this behavior throughout the book of Proverbs. And then there are things that are destructive and difficult to bear. Verse 21, under three things the earth trembles. Under four it cannot bear up. A servant who becomes a king, a godless fool who gets plenty to eat. And then it says a woman who's not loved and gets, uh, let me just find that verse uh, 23 here a contemptible woman, that's a hated woman or an unloved woman who gets married, and a servant who displaces her mistress. Let me just, in the ancient Near East thinking, the earth shakes when the natural order is disturbed. Here the wisdom writers give two examples, two male, two female examples of a world that's in distress. How many know when you give a fool leadership responsibilities, that's a dangerous thing? Now, what I mean by a fool here, remember the definition. This is a person who's not who lacks character. There's moral deficiency in their lives. And so let me explain what I've learned about leadership. You know, I've been a leader now for 39 years. That's a long time. So I think I, have, I can say something to this. And I'll just say it just really quickly. There's two things that are necessary to be a good leader. Number one, you have to develop the right character. Because what you do comes out of who you are. How many know that's true in all of our lives? What you do comes out of who you are. So you have to develop character. How many know character takes experience, takes time to develop character? Number two, you know, leadership is a skill. It's something you have to develop. Now, how many know that Proverbs is teaching a wise person recognizes what they don't know? A foolish person thinks they know. And people who think they know a lot of stuff do a lot of dumb things because they're not seeking other people coming in and helping them and assisting them in making decisions. And so they get into trouble. They make bad decisions. And then they make short-sighted, irresponsible decisions, and that causes tremendous pain for the people around them. And then we read here, uh, a uh, a, a godless fool who gets plenty to eat. Why Why is this something that's difficult? This is basically the rich fool that Jesus talked about who was building bigger barns. What was he doing? He doesn't understand stewardship. That when you and I have been given something by God, it's actually a stewardship. That you and I need to seek God and find out how he wants us to use it. But when we're a, a godless fool, what do we do with everything we get? We consume it upon ourselves generally. Isn't that true? And that's what people do. And isn't that, is that what God wants? Not necessarily. I think God's entrusting us with these things for a purpose. And then we read about the woman who's uh, unloved here. And I was reading, these scholars are debating: is this a divorced person, or is this just somebody who's just, you know, never been, you know, shown love? I'll say it to you this way: people who feel unloved and people who are needy, when they finally get married, a lot of times their motivation is so that this person will meet my needs. And let me just say something about marriage. Marriage is not getting getting someone to meet my needs. Marriage is actually having my needs met by God in order for me to give something to someone else. And when two people come with the right understanding, it enriches the relationship. But when you have two needy people coming into a relationship, it's going to cause a lot of challenge. And you're going to have difficulty in that relationship. And so I like what Harry Ironsign says this on unamicable and vindictive in her disposition. This is the unloved woman. She destroys the peace and happiness of her husband and her children because, you know what, she's, hurt. she's a hurting unit and she's gonna hurt other people. That's what he's basically saying. And then the last example he uses is the servant girl who displaces her mistress. Now we see the story in the book of Genesis how Hagar displaced Sarah when she became pregnant began to despise her. But most of us in this room go, I can't even relate to that story, Right? Can I give you a modern application? And I'm not, I'm not going to pick on the young woman or the, I, I can pick on the older man too, but here's a couple. The man has been married for a long time, and then he finds a younger woman, ditches his wife, and marries the younger woman. I think that's a good illustration here, you know, where the young woman is displacing her, the, the woman of the house, in a sense. And how much pain has that created over time? And how, how about the husband whom the scriptures are teaching in the book of Proverbs? It says, you know, love the wife of your youth and value her. And you know, I'm going to make a statement here that will really encourage you, I think. The longer you're married, if you can keep growing as people and get closer to God, the better your marriage becomes. Amen. That's the truth. Yes, we need to hear that today because a lot of people say, well, I'm not happy. I'll just go find someone else. I'm going, no, work on you. Pray that God will work on your spouse and as you mature together, your marriage will get better. And, and I think that's important. We need to hear that message because we're not hearing that in our culture today. The fourth set of fours are those things that are extremely small but wise. We have these amazing examples. Four things on earth are small yet they're extremely wise. Answer are creatures of little strength yet they store up their food in summer. Hydraxes are creatures of little power, yet they make their homes in the crags. Locusts have no king, yet they advance together in ranks. And the final one is, a lizard can be caught with a hand, yet it's found in king's palaces. Here, wisdom that is applauded is the skill to survive. The ant works when it's got its opportunity in the summertime. This is an argument for saving. So it's not, you know, God's not against saving money. See, you have to... How many, you have to have a balance. Here's the end, he's storing up so there's an hour when he won't have it. There's a good example, when you're younger, store up for your old age. You know, here's an example. You know, store up for a time when you don't have it, like a rainy day. I always tell people, you know, give 10, save 10, live on 80. And if you, as later on, you'll be able to do even more giving. Your giving levels and your saving levels can go up if you learn that principle. Okay, let me talk about the next one. the hyrax. What's a hyrax? Well, that's a rock badger. and they have them in Israel. What are they doing? They hide in the rocks because they're defenseless, and they use the rocks to protect their lives. That's wisdom. you know using the, the, the community of the other rock badgers, they're signaling to each other, they're tunneling in community, learning to work together. The locust instinctively works and consumes in an organized manner. They don't even, even, they don't even need a king. They just instinctively go in ranks to eat their food and then the little gecko the lizard is the modern gecko here can be found in the most opulent of surroundings isn't that great they can get in where others can't and then finally there are the things that are majestic in manner proverbs 30 29 says there are three things that are stately in their stride for that move with stately bearing a lion mighty among the beasts who retreats before nothing a strutting rooster a he goat and a king secure against revolt and here we have examples of power and the absence of fear. While the previous examples were those that were wise without strength. These are kind of the, the examples of strength in their own realm. And we're reminded of an earlier proverb. When we fear God, you know what happens? God removes the fear in our lives. Listen, the wicked flee, though no one pursues. But the righteous are as bold as a lion. Wisdom breeds this kind of courage. And yet we find a close, closing warning against walking and self-exaltation. He says, if you play the fool and exalt yourself, he says, put your hand over your mouth. That's another word of saying, be quiet. Don't say any more. Paul Coptic says, so also the picture of four beings that struck carries a note of satire. This is how he interprets it. I think it's fascinating. A king with an army may be great, but there may be one even greater. If there were a better than saying at the end of all this, it might be better to be humble and wise than a fool who pretends to be great. He says, humility is a virtue of which the church and the watching world never says enough. And I think that's true. You know, we really lack this this quality. Why am I coming back to humility? Why is pride an issue? Because these, these are all expressions of pride, you know, As a matter of fact, when you read the very last verse, it says, For as churning cream produces butter, and as twisting the nose produces blood, so stirring up anger produces strife. And that's what foolish people do. They create strife. Where a wise person, as uh, Robert Alden says, is to make peace. And at times, you know, or Richard Clifford, sorry, uh, and avoids strife. Robert Alden says, Quarrels often begin when fools hold greedy or stupid positions. The problem could end quickly if they would just clap their hands over their mouths, which... I put stop talking, but the more tenacious they hold on, the more belligerent they become. You ever met people like that? They got a strong opinion. They won't back down. It says it begins when they fall in love with themselves and their ideas, and it ends up in a bloody battle in which righteousness rarely triumphs. So how does evil come into our lives? Self-will. We started the sermon there. What is self-will? It's an expression of our dependency on ourselves rather than God. We're trusting and we're wise in our own eyes. We're not leaning to, uh, we're leaning to our own understanding rather than trust God. And so we're gonna close the service right now by having you stand. And I wanna just close with these thoughts uh, just to bring this message home to us, to bring us to our real basis in life. How do we deal with the anger in our world? Well, the answer is, it starts with us. You see, I think we're, we're so busy, focused out there that we miss that the beginning point is in here. We have to walk in humility. We have to walk in wisdom. we got to address the things in our lives that aren't right. Do you know what? I, you know what I, I shared this in the first service. You know what happens is we see people in the world and they're doing the wrong thing. What do we do? We want to come along and criticize them. Or we see somebody in the church and they're struggling, come along want to criticize what they're doing. Maybe we don't even know them. It's easier to criticize unknown people. We just criticize them. Can I say something? Which is more powerful? To do that, we're confronting and criticizing or to come alongside of someone. We know they're doing the wrong thing, but we come beside them and we say, can we help you? And we start lifting them up. And a lot of these people, when they have someone coming beside them and lifting them up, begin to realize There is a better way. You see, when you think about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, He is a paraclete. It means to come alongside of. And God, in your life and in my life, what does he do in our lives? But he comes alongside of us to lift us up and to help us. And so I'm gonna argue today that, you know, one of the things we need to do as a church family, one of the things I need to do as a pastor, one of the things we need to do collectively is to come alongside of people. Even if you don't agree with what they're doing, even if you disagree, maybe they're doing crazy things. But I believe if we come alongside and start lifting them up, we're going to have greater impact in their life than if we come along and just criticize them. You see, Jesus came into the world not to condemn the world. He came into the world to do what? He came to save it. And you see, you and I, we're the Christ the world needs right now. The spirit of the living God is dwelling within us. The spirit of Christ is within us. And I believe that at this moment of time in this this place, I'm going to let God be their judge, but I'm going to come alongside of them and begin to lift them up because that's what God's called us to do. And when we come alongside of people and show them that there's a better way to live, that we can help them, bring them on home. When I mean bring them home, we're bringing them to the Father. We're bringing them to God. We're bringing them to redemption. We're bringing them to deliverance from the evil within their own souls. An awakening comes within sight of them, and they realize, you know what, I've been doing the wrong thing all my life. Father, forgive me. And I've done things that are destructive and hurtful and painful. But you know, how do you, how do you bring people to a place of repentance? It says, and it's the goodness and the kindness and the, and, and the love of God and the forbearance and the richness of God's long suffering that's actually bringing people to repentance. And so I want to pray today. Why don't we begin, if we want to deal with evil, let's deal with it in our own hearts. If we want to really get into the life of other people, let's come alongside of them and lift them up. How many are catching on what I'm trying to say to us? That we should focus on the problems within us and lift these guys up. Let God deal with those guys. God will deal with people. Believe me, he can do it. It's powerful what he can do. And how many can see that maybe the challenge is that we get so full of ourselves that is so easy. We become good Pharisees. We know all the rules. We know all the commandments, you know? But I want to just point out something. There was the Pharisees who fought with Christ. And it was these guys who crucified the God they said they served. And I don't want to be guilty of crucifying the God I say I serve. I want to be the kind of person that says, "Lord, I want to be just like you." I may get criticized for helping this guy. I don't care, I'm gonna be just like you. Jesus got criticized for helping sinners. Come on now, isn't that true? And the only sinner that I need to focus in on is the one I look at every morning in the mirror. And I say, God, there's evil within me, search me. Remove that stuff from my life. Get that junk out of me. With every head bowed today, I mean, it's so easy, to, it's so, we can be so quick, we can be so quick to point out other people's faults. But many times, the thing we see, we're the most guilty of ourselves. Remember Jesus said, if you're gonna remove the speck in your brother's eye, make sure you take the log out of your own, amen? And how many here today, the Spirit of God is now speaking to you and saying, you know what? I want you to deal with the evil in your own heart but I want you to come alongside of people and lift them up. I want you to come alongside of people that are confused and they're lost. Maybe they're angry and they're spewing all kind of venom and all the rest of it, but come alongside of them anyways and show them a better way and lead them home, amen? How many here say, I need help to do that, Pastor? I need God to deal with the pride in my own heart, first of all, the evil in my own soul. Lord, deliver us from these. It's so simple to get into. We get so critical, so angry, so frustrated with evil. But Lord, may it begin in my own soul. And Father, when I see the problems in our world, help me to come and be a solution giver. Help me to come alongside of people and help lift their burden and not just stack one more burden on top of them. Help me to be a lifter-upper instead of a downer. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.